And now, coming to you live from the... No. 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 Okay. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back, and they're off, and I'm going to start this podcast. I want to offer my congratulations to you, Jonathan, for winning what I think is the most impressive-sounding and enigmatic <laughs> award at, at the Orialis Awards. Was it last week? It was last week. It was last Sunday night. Or Saturday night. I am going, I, I, I copied this down. I'm going to read this to our listeners because I've never had anything like this in my life. Uh, this is the Peter McNamara Convener's Award for Excellence. Yes. And it doesn't say excellence in what? I bake, just, I bake an award for being an excellent person. I bake some mean muffins. Well, that could be it. I'm. I just. I'm. I'm glad to know. I'm. I'm. I'm a friend with somebody who's excellent. I have and, a trophy. I'm holding. I'm holding up the microphone, listener, so you can see it. Yes, <laughs> that's. that's actually, it. okay, that's complicated, but it, it looks. It looks lovely. Thank you very much. And, I've been keeping it in a box so it doesn't get dirty. Okay, my questions are this, because yes. you would know this, maybe it may be an Aussie thing. Who is Peter McNamara? What is a convener? And what are you excellent for? Okay, I'll tackle those in order because they are absolutely relevant. And on one hand, I'm delighted you asked. Okay, mm-hmm. Peter McNamara was an editor and publisher based in mm-hmm. South Australia. He started in the mid-1980s following one of the world cons, I think it was the 1984-5 world con, and published a magazine called Aphelion. He published five mm-hmm. issues of Aphelion magazine, or six, five or six, and then uh, on, on completion of that started up as Aphelion Publications, a small press publisher that produced uh, trade paperback novels and short story collections in editions of around 3,000 copies, distributed through Australia around the world, uh, and he... F- published the first novels by Sean Williams. He published m- most of Terry Dowling's books, certainly Terry's first five books, I think. He published all of Sean McMullen's first novels and collections, published really? Damien Broderick, published George Turner, Turner's one and only short story collection, published an, an enormous big an- anthology called Alien Shores, and was, I have to say, very energetic and widely loved and respected, a, a genuinely nice person who was thoroughly supportive when... When people talk about mentoring in, in science fiction, which doesn't happen very often, really, he was one of those people who would and could. I remember I remember when we started Eidolon in 1990, and we sort of reached out and said, hey, look, we're trying to work out what to do. Do you have any advice? And not only was he hugely uh, supportive, but he gave us the entire Aphelion mailing list so we could contact people if they'd be interested in the magazine, that kind Ooh. of stuff. Yeah, so fa- fantastic guy, widely loved. And... But not not widely known outside of Australia. There was a period of time when he was beginning to become so, because Aphelion oh. became quite increasingly well known as being a major force from Australia. I've heard the title. Yeah, unfortunately, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor, oh. uh, which and ultimately uh, passed away from it in the I think it was the early two thousands or late nineteen nineties, and initially, actually, as as part of a memorial for that. His family set up the Peter, Peter McNamara Award, which was supposed to be a career, well, is a career achievement award. It's handed out once a year, and it's different from this award. I received that cool. award a while ago. Uh, the trophy's over under the curtain there. It's a thing called 
Merlin's other bowl. We shan't go into that. No, and, I'm... And at the same time, around the same time, uh, the Aurealis Awards started up in the early 1990s. They were juried award, hence conveners. Uh, oh. The way it works is that for each category of award, this, you know, let the, this is judge intensive, but actually really quite economical in some ways. There's a separate jury for every category in the awards. Each mm-hmm. uh, category has a, each jury has a convener, and the conveners come together to agree on a joint winner for the overall like conveners award. And I think it was originally also something like a, a Golden Aurealis Award, I think, at one point. And the Conveners Award has been presented a bunch of times to individuals and to specific works. Um, I've not seen the accompanying judges' report that goes with this this year's awards, but I assume in this case the uh, excellence in in sort of being excellent isn't because of sort of a love of Bill and Ted movies. It's not because I cook good you know cook good muffins. I assume it's because I edit science fiction. I would assume it's for the anthology. But, Possibly, uh, but I will say it doesn't actually say so. Oh. But it just says excellence. I think that's wonderful. Yes. So I've been excelling, and, and, and thank you. Uh, and we knew that, and um, I'm, I'm glad to know who Peter McNamara was as well. Yep, there you uh, go. And I, I say that if you go to the Locust website, you can see at locustmag.com a, a, an, an almost complete list of some of the winners. Yes. Of the other uh, categories. We, and, and congratulations uh, to all of those people. Yes, congratulations to everyone who won the Aureolas Awards. Does Do awards like this, uh, which are, and, and Australia has a couple of them that we know about, do they help Australian writers get published in the United States or the United Kingdom? There's two things I, I think I have to get, get, get in here very quickly. We need to get off the subject of awards fairly quickly. That's true. Um, and the other is I, I would be skeptical that they have any great career, practical career, value and i would say that for most of the awards i know that john scalzi has blogged about the the actual value to him of winning hugo so i think if you happen to have a career that's in the particular channel and the award fits um then i think that could work very well but by and large i think they mostly you know they make publishers feel good they make and, publishers feel good it's something you can put on a paperback it's something you can put on yeah it's like a new york times bestseller well, you know, well, right. well, it is, and, and also, I mean, it, it's a known fact, right, that mm. an author whose books sell okay, but A, is easy to get on with, and B, wins a lot of kudos for the publishing house, can mm. be somebody who's really highly valued. You know, I mean, we, we, we've talked about oh. how, how well Gene Wolfe sells and how that's under underappreciated, but one of the values he plainly brings to Tories, he's vastly respected, and he's, you know, he's a wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. And every time he's award nominated, and I would be unsurprised if, say, someone like Margot Lanigan is, doesn't provide a similar value to her publishers. And so, you know, there's there are benefits, but there, I don't know that there's like if you showed up and you said, Hi, my name's, you know, Bill Smith, and you've never heard of me, but I won an Aurealis Award. I don't know if that would make much difference. But, you know, you Probably. Know. Although you are suggesting that there are publishers left in the world who believe that actual literary value is. Worth some currency to them. Uh, in other words, people who are publishing, let's say, Gene Wolfe and, and, and Margot Lanigan, uh, are doing that on the basis that the books are reasonably successful, but the books are prestigious. And does prestige still have any currency in publishing? I think it absolutely does. 
it's 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 a, in a small part of their balance sheet, but absolutely, I think uh, that because the prestige is kind of it's difficult to assess. But I'll, let me look at it from this angle. Who does the mm. prestige help? Okay, if you're a prestigious publishing house, it's easier to to attract staff. If you're a prestigious uh, publishing house, presumably those books make your editors feel better, and you want them to feel better. Uh, if you're a prestigious publishing house, then you know you are credible, all those kind of things. And if you, I mean, and I would imagine most of the big publishing houses, once you get sort of below, the, away from the actual stockholders or shareholders, would actually mm-hmm. like to balance. You know, I would like to publish Robert Jordan, and and feel like I published Gene Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you know, exactly what, which what, is what Jordan, uh, right? Or is he? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, I and have that, to say that doesn't mean that if you know, they're not going to sit there and go, "Yes, you won the Pen Faulkner Award, Karen Joy, Joy Fowler, well done you," but we only sold eight copies of We Are Completely Beside Ourselves, so sorry, we, we don't want the next book. Not going to happen. Um, she has to still Karen- sell, but the Pen Faulkner book will actually help sell some books, I'm sure, as well. But it I will say, help sell. some it will help broaden her audience, but also she's had bestsellers. She had the Jane Austen book. Oh, sure, she sure. She has a track. But, but all I'm trying to say and is, though, she, you have to sell books too, but but maybe fewer if you are helping the the publishing house look prestigious. Karen is an unusual case in that she has a very loyal genre following, mm. uh, people who have learned to appreciate her books for the literary value uh, of them, and I've not read We Are All Beside Ourselves, but everybody tells me it's a gorgeous book. Mm-hmm. Um, so she has the, she she has the advantage of having a readership who have who remember Sarah Canary, who read her short stories, who see her uh, you know at Wiscon, and the and in addition to that, she has now the whatever comic trail of readership she had from her bestseller, the Jane Austen Book Club, yep. and she has a general literary readership. Which I think, uh, so she's really in a very good position, I think, that very few authors are in. Oh, sure, sure. I don't doubt that's true. But I mean, I can see, like, if you want to say, where, where does Hugo have value? Well, look at John, John Scalzi. John Scalzi writes heart of the genre science fiction, real core space opera, you know, or mm. space opera uh, related science fiction. Uh, it helps him, I think. Uh, James S. A. Corey. You know, with Leviathan's Wake and, and, and that series, which is just been uh, going to be made into a TV show, which I think is pretty exciting. It's excellent, yes. Um, that would, you know, if they won a Hugo, being nominated for Hugo, that was like exactly the right overlap. So when you get those, I think it helps. Other than that, I don't know. Well, I think generally the awards may or may not make much difference. I suspect that in our field, they might make a little more difference than they do in, in the general field of what we have the National Book Awards here, which five or six years ago, uh, several journalists were writing about the fact that all five finalists for the National Book Award that year, and I don't remember any of the titles, but none of them had sold more than 2,000 copies on their original publication. Sure, uh, sure. And the idea was that the award nomination were supposed to discover those writers, and to my knowledge, uh, they those writers remain pretty much undiscovered today. So I think that what you're saying is correct. I think it may be even more correct about uh, mainstream awards than it um, than it is about, about genre awards. Because if somebody like Scalzi is is in the center of the genre, that is recognizing his excellence in the center of the genre among readers, and that that probably does have some currency. Yeah, so like to like. I mean, uh, you, you look at us as readers. I mean, 
we've both read all the Hugo winners, right? Hugo winning novels. Beat, 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 pause, listeners. Right, Gary? Uh, <laughs> uh, we've read all of them. Yeah, um, I've, we've, I've, 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 I've certainly seen most of them. I've seen most of them. <laughs> I love that. Okay, I, I will. I'm not going to name what? names, but I've read all but one. You've read all but one of the Hugo nominated novels? Yes. Now you're wondering, aren't you? There's only one question in your mind right now, isn't it? Which is the one you haven't read? I know. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Well, think about this. How much would I have to be disinterested in reading a book, Gary, to be able to sit there before you and say, I have read every Hugo Award winning novel dating back to 1953, but deliberately, coldly, and with premeditation, I have not read one of them. Kids, send in your box tops now, right on the box top. Which Hugo-nominated novel has not been read by Jonathan, and who wins the award will get a free sea breeze at Worldcon in London. Yeah, okay, sure, yes. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go further. If you're not related to me, and you can name the book, I'll announce it on the, I'll, I'll announce it on the podcast. Okay, that? and I'm not going to get any further no. because we have... We have knowledgeable. We have we have listeners far more knowledgeable than ourselves. <laughs> this Almost is awful. Inevitably. Oh, thank God, no, nobody listens to this part of the podcast. Okay. So, Gary, tell me. Speaking of, of having of reading things, what are you reading, Gary? I well, I just finished the year's best number eight, edited by Jonathan Strawn, which is full of weird stories. Was it any good? Uh, I'm currently reading. Uh, there, well, you haven't seen my review yet, have you? No. It, it, raises, it, it raises very interesting questions about these genre boundaries we've talked about before. This is um, code for no people. And, yeah. No, it's... it's, it's, it's it, <laughs> this is very weird. I mean, okay, okay, so, so here, you're my pal. We're on a podcast together. You've edited this book. I've written a review of it. You haven't seen the review. When you do see the review... Actually, I should say this for people who are wondering about this. Jonathan does not edit my reviews of his books. No, I don't. I think Lost Trombi does that. So, yeah. so you'll see it soon enough. But yes, it's something that is a thought-provoking anthology, which is what I think anthology should be. <laughs> I'll try to do better next year, Gary. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> anyway, apart from my, my book, what else have you been reading? I'm, well, the, the books that I have that are coming up uh, for future reviews, there is, we were talking about uh, moving upscale with publishers, and uh, one of the novels that's on my pile here is one I've already reviewed in the British edition, but the American edition of Graham Joyce's new novel, and by the way, my window is open because here in Chicago it is now very warm, and that means that there are ambulances and police outside chasing down people. Graham Joyce's new novel is coming out in the United States from Doubleday under the title of The Ghost in the Electric Blue Suit, even though in England it was called Year of the Ladybird. And I think I remember it's coming out in August, yeah. it looks like. Yeah. And I think we may have talked about this at the time, that do Americans know what a ladybird is? Because we call them ladybugs. Yeah. And that could be part of it. I'm also reading the second volume of William Patterson's biography of Robert Heinlein, which many of us think is the more interesting 
uh, and problematical part because this is the volume, this is coming out in June, coverage from 1948 until Heinlein's death in 1988, which means that the problematical Heinlein um, okay, let, okay let, let, let's touch on this. There's a, there's a whole bunch of little things I want to touch on because I'm fascinated by the point. Well, not fascinated. That's we talk about it because I get bored easily, um, and I'm not that fascinated, but I'm interested about where Heinlein's reputation is even as we speak. So, when you talk about problematical Heinlein, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to throw it at you that there's no non-problematical Heinlein. Well. Okay, explain that. Okay, what is problematical? Historically, problematical has been flagged as being the period in Heinlein's career when he was older, unedited, more rambly. Uh, The post, to to pin it to a particularly low point in his literary career, I Will Fear No Evil and onwards, when the books got fatter and more digressive and there was sort of creepy old men in them a lot, right? Right. Silver Comedy of Justice, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, though some felt warmly about Job, strangely. I mean, I mean th- th- of course, I Won't Fear No Evil was also, I think, followed. When they got, by the time he got to the number of the beast, I think it was also seen as being like well off the rails. But th- though some people liked Friday. However, as we saw when they released his unreleased first, his first novel uh, not that long ago, it became clear that. A lot of that stuff was in his work all along. And then as contemporary yeah. younger reviewers are going back and re- you know, looking at Heinlein again, it becomes clearer that there's some pretty skeezy attitudes to sex in some of the YA books, um, some strange politics here and there, some real misogyny, blah, 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 right? I mean, uh-huh. I, I, when I, I read, say, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress when I was 13, 12 or 13, uh-huh. So, frankly, when you're 12 or 13, any comments about having sex with 14-year-old girls goes over your, your head. That's uh, true. Largely because you're barely hoping about having sex with 14-year-old girls yet, and, and when you're 13, 14-year-old girls seem like fair game. Um, so tell me, what is unproblematic or Heinlein? Is there a way to look at him from a, a non-problematical angle? Um, What I was saying earlier about, actually, your year's best applies here. Uh, Read read your review. (laughs) I may send this direct to lives, and you may not see it until it appears in print. Um, The the thing is, he meant to be provocative, I think. He did have these ideas. He had uh, very leftist ideas. He worked with a, essentially a socialist candidate for governor of California who was a novelist, Upton Sinclair, and then later was involved and very supportive of uh, Roosevelt's New Deal, and then later became disillusioned with what he considered leftism, leftist versions of liberalism. So there were always these kind of odd ideas. There are things that I didn't realize in some of the young adult fiction. I mean, Heinlein used non-white protagonists in science fiction stories almost before anybody else among white male authors did that, and that included yep. at least one of the uh, young adults. So he, he, his, his attitude seemed to sort of slice the pie differently in the way a lot of contemporary science fiction libertarian attitudes do. I mean, he clearly was very supportive of, of nudity, of, uh, I, I think, of to some extent, of recreational drug use. And on the other hand, he was very anti-government in various ways. So, yeah, he was problematical in that sense. But the attitude toward women is very interesting because... Um, it was always 
it always had that creepy factor. This, mm. Can you hear? Those, you're hearing those sirens. Yeah, yeah, too, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, quite loudly. Yeah, close okay. But but I know I, I know of two younger critics who are both women, uh, feminists, self-identified feminists, who read the later novels in a very different way from the traditional reading. That in fact this was not simply the untrammeled Heinlein not being edited anymore, but a kind of experimental Heinlein, a Heinlein who was trying out different ways to embed his rhetorical ideas, not always successfully, but to embed them in uh, narratives that did very weird things with women, but as both of these people, and I'm not, I'm not naming the names because I have not got the permission to name names, but they're both good, clear readers of Heinlein, that when you look at the weirdness in isolation from the way he treats women characters in other fiction or the way he treats gender relations in general, he becomes a lot more sophisticated and a lot more complex than, than we tend to think. You read the late novels, you see the creepiness, but the creepiness in context is not that simple. And this is what I've been told. I've not reread the late novels in light of these sort of feminist revisions, and yep. I don't know if they'll hold up, yep. but I do know... I do know committed feminists who are very fond even of the late novels. Do you know anybody... <laughs> do you, can you think of anywhere else in fiction people cling as much to someone who's been dead 30 years and hasn't been important as a writer for 50 as they, we do in science fiction? What do you mean by we? Um, you're... I, I hate to bring this up, but you're... No, no, look, we, we you and I, us. The, the, I mean, look, yes, I'm, I'm a, a little bit younger than you you are, <laughs> uh, uh -huh. but uh, you're right. I started off reading Heinlein, and I was... I mean, I, 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 was, I bought books that he published during his lifetime. Absolutely true. Uh, and if you had questioned me at age 20 or at age 30, or I would have told you that I was a card-carrying member of the Heinlein army... Ah. I had read all the books, though I confess I don't think I ever finished A Sail Beyond the Sunset. Um, I kind of like Job, the Comedy of Justice. Um, it had its moment. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I'd like it now. I'm not the same reader I was in 1985 or, or in 1988, you know. And it's I, interesting, I was talking to Marianne about the mid-80s mid and what I look back on fondly, and Heinlein wasn't part of that, so... The reason, the reason I ask about we is serious, because you and I have talked, uh, and sometimes we've had guests on the podcast, who are of a younger generation of readers who haven't read Heinlein, who don't feel the need to read Heinlein, who don't think that Heinlein is sort of a prerequisite uh, to entering the field of science fiction at all, and I don't think there's any really persuasive argument to say to these younger writers that you need to read Heinlein. Uh, if they do want to read Heinlein, now, just in terms of uh, sort of instant uh, preview of the review, if they want to find out what the big deal is about Heinlein, they shouldn't be starting out with William Patterson's now thousand-page uh, biography, because that only will make sense to people who believe that Heinlein is an American, uh, a major American writer. Uh, interestingly enough, a book I received at the same time, which is called A Heritage of Heinlein, a critical reading of fiction, it's only a couple of hundred pages, and it goes through Heinlein pretty much novel by novel. Not uncritical at all, but at least it's an introduction. It's by Thomas Clarison, who was the founder, one of yep. the founders of the academic study of science fiction. He founded the uh, Modern Language Association Seminar in Science Fiction in 1960-something and uh, died 20 years ago. And this is finished by uh, Joe Sanders, 
who has been a scholar for a long time. It's a good way for people who don't want to have to read Heinlein to understand why he's important to the rest of us. Um, the Patterson biography is written for you and me, and people want to know what they had for dinner on the cruise ship in 1953. Uh, the kind of really detailed biography that uh, that you only read if you already assume the importance of the subject. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I, there's a personal reading thing here that I'm struggling with, and here, here's what I'm struggling with. Obviously, I read a lot of contemporary science fiction on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis, and I don't think, well, no, I, I tell you, I have reread two Heinlein books in the last 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. One of which I found very disappointing, bordering on unreadable, and one which I thought held up really quite well, right? Mm. The former being Glory Road, which I used to love quite a lot and now I think is a pretty ordinary book, mm-hmm. and the other being um, Citizen of the Galaxy. And I'm a little bit loath now in, in 2014 to try and make the time to go and read Heinlein to revisit it to see what my own answer is to the question today. Yeah, I have this feeling that he will be, he's fading to an academic dot point. I don't know if people entering the field are reading him um, the way people entering the field read him 20 years ago. I suspect not. I suspect that he might have been supplanted by other people. I suspect, I've, I've talked to any number of people who, you know, when you begin reading science fiction by reading Gene Wolfe in the 80s, or reading Cory Doctorow in the 2000s, uh, the, the need to go back and pick up on Heinlein, or Stapleton, or even Wells, doesn't seem as demanding as it might have seemed to us. Yeah. There, was a, uh, there was a sense that Heinlein was, was it. There was clearly a sense that uh, you know, he made science fiction grow up. You're right, that's an academic point now. The idea that what became a standard technique of science fiction of writing the future as though it were contemporary domestic realism, that is, writing from within the point of view of the future society, is something Heinlein really perfected, but he perfected yeah. it 70 years ago. He did. you know. And I think what's interesting is that when you try and explain Heinlein, and we talk about Heinlein far too much, but, uh, but honestly, the continuation of this, I'm going to go out in a limb, Gary, and I, you don't need to respond to this. I, I tried to read volume one of, of the Patterson book. I don't think it's very good. And I wouldn't recommend it to readers personally, and I haven't recommended it. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody who isn't already fascinated. Now, uh, I found the first volume fascinating from the sense that this is somebody I'd wondered about. He was kind of an enigma to me. It's full of details. There is a kind of enthusiast biography, and the same thing has happened um, with the recent biography of, uh, of Bradbury, which is supplying details only for people who are intensely interested in what those details are. Is it a hagiography for train spotters? That's an interest. That's a great phrase. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, (laughs) To some extent that that, that, that's a fair criticism. I think to some extent, I think there is a tendency among scholars who are, who grew up in the field, who basically become fan scholars to amass enormous amounts of data and assume that it's all of equal value, and, and, and therefore you don't get a balanced sense of, of where the fiction comes. There was, And I think that was true of the first volume, although the first volume, to be honest, only dealt with sure. up to 1948. Um, a similar book came out, and I can't remember the author's name, um, but my publisher in England, Beckon, published it, a uh, biography of Eric Frank Russell, 
which was enormously detailed, like everything anybody could ever find out about Eric Frank Russell and his family and his family's history and his wife's family's history are in the book. Uh, and there's a kind of hypnotic uh, effect to that level of detail. If I were reading a biography of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who actually wrote, uh, it would be equally fascinating. So I don't know. I don't think that you should go into a biography of a writer to learn about the writer. Biographies are not written for people who want to understand why the writer is important, which is why you need short, punchy, critical books explaining why do we have... Um, one of the things, I'll plug my friend... Uh, Karen Burnham's book about Greg Egan. Karen Burnham's book about Greg Egan. The, the whole idea of the um, University of Illinois series is to have one book that... The first book in the series was by Jad Smith about John Brunner. A lot of people don't read John Brunner anymore. No, no. You know, even if Stan Robinson pays homage to John Brunner uh, in 2312, um, people are not reading Stan. If they're reading anything, they might be reading Stan on Zanzibar, but they're not reading. But, you, but people want to know why is Brunner important. People yep. who maybe have a hard time getting into Egan want to know why Egan is important. They read sure. Karen's book. But there was a book in the series on Benford. There's a book coming out on Lois McMaster Bujold. Um, and all of these are very useful for people who want to find out if this is somebody they want to read. But no, you don't read a 500-page, a 1,000-page biography of Heinlein or a 700-page biography of Bradbury or uh, a 1,500-page biography. I'm sure that they all have had up to that by now of Lovecraft. Uh, that's not how you learn to get an ad. Now I've got now we've got a cat meowing in addition to sirens I can outside. See. Okay. okay. All right. Let me put this to you. No writers dominate science fiction in 2014 the way a group of about five writers dominated the field up to about 90, uh, 1990 or so, and I don't think they ever will again. I don't think that's true. I think, I think you're absolutely correct. I think... When we talked about, and everybody of a certain generation, maybe your generation on up and including mine, could easily talk about the big three or the big four in the 1950s. Asimov, Clark, Heinlein, Bradbury, and then a second tier with Simak and Sturgeon and so forth. I don't think even that second tier is identifiable these days. Yeah. And it's interesting because the, 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 there was a writer who was placed to be the next most dominant writer after Heinlein. Mm -hmm. And both through just I think personal proclivity as a writer, or whatever else, walked away from that, and that would be Bill Who's Gibson. Um, I would insert another writer before Bill Gibson and after Heinlein, and I think the writer who did become dominant and has remained dominant is Ursula Le Guin. I think she altered the field in all sorts of sophisticated ways in terms of characterization, in terms of sure, sheer sure. beauty of prose style. Maybe. I, I would say this. If, if you were to say to me, can you think of anyone who inherited the title of the Dean of Science Fiction, if such a thing means anything in 2015, or meant anything before, um, Le Guin is the only one I can think of. Yeah, Le Guin is probably... A, a long, over a long career and a variety of works. Of, and, and, and Gene Wolfe is in that same category. Although, honestly, I think Le Guin has been a more influential writer in all sorts of ways than Gene Wolfe has. Um, yes, well, Le Guin has, because she's widely, widely read, amongst other things. She's widely, widely read. And, and, and she, she's created a kind of universe, the ecumen, which is very tempting for other people to, to work into. Karen Lord's 
uh, new no her, her, her first real science fiction novel, because uh, Redemption in Indigo was a combination of science fiction, fantasy, folklore, and all sorts of things. But The Best of All Possible Worlds was very much influenced by Le You can see a lot of people. Actually, weirdly, Gary, I bet you could put together quite an interesting list of people who walked away from being um, a big five, you know, the next big five. Really? Yeah. You, you said, well, Gibson walked away from Okay, Gibson belongs on the list. Chip Delaney belongs, belongs on the list. Who does? Chip Delaney. Yes. He walked away from it. He had other things he wanted to do artistically. Uh, I bet he could have taken what he did up through Nova and even um, Dahlgren and gone on to be the most dominant, one of the most dominant science fiction writers of the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. But he wanted artistically and personally to do other things. I think he was growing as a writer. And I think when he moved, uh, the, the transition point, which I've talked to a number of people about, Seems to be Dahlgren. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the time you have Nova and uh, uh, the, the Einstein intersection, the the late '60s novels and the early '70s, Dahlgren is, and I, to be honest, read it once and was amaz amazingly impressed by it because I read it at exactly the right time. And interestingly enough, Fred Poe bought it for Bantam Books, but I read it at a time when I was equally fascinated in science fiction and James Joyce and experimental fiction and Faulkner, and I thought this is the first book that really does that. Uh, and it was really successful. I've not reread it since then. And after that, I think you're right. He pursued his own interests. He pursued his critical theory interests. Uh, he moved into the Navarian series, and um, and yep. eventually into uh, you know what he's writing now, the Valley of the Nested Spider. So you're right. I think he kind of didn't want to be that. But by the time, by the time, uh, by the end of the period in which Dahlgren was published, that community was beginning to atomize anyway. Yeah. And, and then Bill Gibson comes along with Neuromancer in 1984, and he, he follows it up a few times. I mean, there you, you have the trilogy, you have the Sprawl mm -hmm, trilogy. Sure, sure. But again, again, I think what he wanted to do was write what he wanted to write. And I don't know if he thinks that he ever moved away from his role in science fiction. I think he just followed what he was writing. And I think, yeah. he's, I, I think he's as fascinating a writer now. He's a good example of the kind of writer, if you read Zero History, where you can... You can sort of push it and nudge it and, and play with it like dough and make it look like science fiction, and maybe it is science fiction, uh, or maybe it isn't. Yeah. But I don't think that anybody reading that would be disappointed in it. I can think of a couple of authors who are arguments why, why it appears where it's no longer culturally possible to become a, a big five. Because there are ah. two authors as well, there are several probably, but two I can think of off the top of my head who have all the characteristics of being big five writers. Mm -hmm. And they would be, first, Lars Master Bouchold, mm -hmm. who is commercially successful, widely loved, multiple Hugo Award winner, the only person who ties with Heinlein for the most number of Hugo novel wins, um, but isn't in quite that same place. Uh, and Neil Stevenson, you know, who's also drifted from the genre a little, but, you know, possibly... I think you're right. Yeah. Probably after that list, Connie Willis. Yeah, okay. Hugely successful, has had major bestsellers, has a devoted following in the field, has... Uh, it, it, she, to some extent, what Connie Willis and Lois Bujold have done are to buy into their own universes to some extent. In other words, Bujold's novels, except for her fantasy novels, tend to be part of the same kind of 
future military history kind of thing. They're very good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of Connie Willis's novels have been set in the same 20 second, 22nd century, 21st century Oxford history department traveling back into the past. Um, but they attain enormous amounts of popularity. Uh, they have uh, followings that go beyond normal science fiction readership. Uh, sure. And they are beloved within the science fiction community. Yep, yep. So and I think a, we should, yeah. one of the people we should have mentioned to go back to uh, um, Heinlein's generation is Bob Silverberg is still a revered figure in the field. He is. I think that because one of the books I have now is the, I think, the ninth volume of his collected stories, which yes. takes it up to, in, to 2009. And you realize, okay, here's somebody who's been an influential, active member of the field continuously up until just about now. It is very true. And um, I think what's a little bit staggering is that probably the collected stories of Robert Silverberg, if I understand them correctly, are misnamed. Because they are they are, they are the selected stories of Robert Silverberg in nine volumes. Our vastly pr- pr- prolific pal wrote more than nine volumes worth of short stories. There are more volumes worth of short stories. Um, now, what's interesting about you, that book... No, no, just 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 a, a minor yeah. semantic point. The collected stories, three three terms: the se- selected stories, the collected stories, and the complete stories. Yes. The complete stories is the sort of thing you do for somebody like Edgar Allan Poe, who is so canonical that scholars just want to know everything. Collected stories means somebody, presumably the author, has chosen to collect yeah. some stories, but not all. And selected stories usually means. The author wanted to collect all the stories, but the editor or somebody said, well, why don't we just call it a selection? Or, you know, that some kind of representative sample getting close to a best of, those sorts of things. Well, best of, yeah. Best of is always kind of awkward. The best of Connie Willis under that title really is the award-winning stories of Connie Willis. Yes. Um, anyway, what I find interesting about that book, and there's something I'm going to cycle back to very quickly, about the book you're talking about, the ninth volume of the collected stories, is it's also effectively his new short story collection. I know it really is because these are stories published since. Let me look at it really quickly. Since 1995, this yeah. is the last 15 years of his career. Yes, and that I think is rather amazing because he's been publishing regularly during this period. Yeah, and, and the, only, the only other short story collection he's had had out uh, is uh, the new Majapur book that came out last year. Mm-hmm. So there's this as well. This is you know a book that's been that's been in the makings for some time and is is a, a Interesting addition to his canon. What fascinates me about it is something that Bob himself has said, I think I'm pretty sure in public on more than one occasion, which is he doesn't have anything to prove anymore. He, he's, you know, his career in terms of establishing the variety of things he can write in terms of establishing his reputation is over, which means that what he publishes now is anything he wants to write. Yeah. And the variety of kinds of fiction that he's written during his career from I actually have some old copies of Super Science Stories from 1955 yeah. and 1956 when he and Harlan Ellison wrote every story in the issue under various names. Yeah. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, I had the ones that are called Special Monster Issues, uh, where they would commission <laughs> a really ugly monster for the cover of it. And then <laughs> the stories were incredibly throwaway stories. I mean, I had to read a lot. I read all of those stories when I was doing a book on Harlan. And I did, at the same time, read some of the Silverberg stories. I can't tell the difference, and I'm sure that both 
Harlan and Bob are really glad that those stories will never be collected anywhere. Yeah. And if they were collected anywhere, they wouldn't tell you anything about the writers. No, no, no. Uh, so, I mean, certainly uh, the this, this set from Subterranean Press is the definitive statement about Bob's short fiction. Mm. And I'd kind of like actually to see Subterranean do a couple of omnibuses of his novels to match them. Of who? Subterranean, to do a couple of uh, volumes of his novels, a couple of omnibuses to match these. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, the selected novels. Well, it's interesting to look at how some novels um, sort of gain currency over the years. Novels that you think might become dated actually become less dated. Yeah. And one of the books, uh, this came up in the sustainability and fiction class I'm teaching, one of the books that came up for discussion was The World Inside. Mm -hmm. And The World Inside, when he wrote that, uh, and a lot of people who haven't read the novel probably have read the short story derived from it, A Happy Day in 2381 or whatever it is. And he, I know he was fascinated by the idea of arcologies, the idea of these thousand-story high, gigantic urban buildings. And yet, from an environmental sustainability point of view, uh, I, I was looking at that novel recently in preparing the class. It really has gained relevance in some ways. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And there's a couple of books. I mean, I, I was saying, telling you not like, long ago that I read The Drowned World for the first time, the Bouge, the, Bouge, the, Bouge, the, Bouge, the Ballard novel. Bougeol novel. Bougeol's Drowned World would be quite interesting. Uh, but anyway, Ballard's Drowned World. And it doesn't feel like it's really dated at all. It feels very contemporary. Yeah, there's a sense in which uh, that was probably... If I go in, no, it's, it, it may have been something like the first global warming novel because it's a completely tropical world, yeah. although Brian just wrote something about it at the same time. On the other hand, it's very interesting to look at Ballard's The Drowned World, which I think is very relevant, is very literate, is very sophisticated. And go back only a couple of years before that and look at The Wind from Nowhere, which is essentially a B-movie disaster epic. Yeah. Um, it is... It, it's not a bad story, but it just really doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't have any of the depth and, and, and nuance of, of, of The Drowned World. Um, I was, the other novel I was thinking that seems, I thought might be dated, but it turns out is relevant in different ways than it was when it came out, was Le Guin's The Word for World is Forest, yep. which at the time, it was in one of the Dangerous Visions anthologies, and it was a powerful anti-Vietnam statement. I presented it to my students in class, for whom Vietnam might as well be the Battle of Verdun. I mean, it's ancient history. Yeah. It's something over before they were born. And they they sort of understood the references to napalm, but there was a lot of what we, we would now call ecofeminism. There's a lot of stuff about, a, a lot of stuff they recognized, obviously, which was borrowed by the movie Avatar. So the, the kind of sustainability environmental issues in the novel make it seem new, even to readers who don't, pick up the Vietnam references. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed, was, indeed. Look at this from that perspective. Let, um, me, let me just cycle back a quick, to circle back a little bit to something you were talking about a minute ago. Who would be yeah. your pick for the top, you know, the big five of 2014? I'll give you four to start off with that I would name, based on our discussions. Bujold, Willis, Le Guin, and Gibson. Add Gene Wolfe to that. As a big five writer? The equivalent of Clark, yeah. Heinlein, Paul, Asimov... Oh, you mean in terms of everybody reads them and everybody... Yeah, I think I would. Wow. I, I mean, I've got an enormous amount of respect for Gene Wolfe, but I can't see that at all. Well, okay, tell, tell me what defines the big five, if not absolute excellence in writing. And maybe that's not it, because, to be honest... Broad Clark readership as well. Is that excellent? Clark, hmm? Clark, Heinlein, Asimov, Paul, 
those Bradbury had huge readerships. They were, you know, they were not only critically dominant, they were broadly read and success and um, commercially successful. Hmm. And whilst we know that Gene Wolfe is by no means the commercial shrinking violet that people sometimes cast him as, nonetheless, I don't think that he's, you know, you, you could make a, make a better case, in fact, for Neil Stevenson than you could for Gene Wolfe. Well, Neil Stevenson would have been my other thought, except for the fact that Neil Stevenson's readership. Uh, here, here's the distinction I would make there, and I, it's a distinction I'd make, and possibly with Gene Wolfe, but certainly with Neil Stevenson and certainly with, with Gibson. Um, the readerships that defined Asimov, Clark, Bradbury, uh, and Heinlein were mm. science fiction readerships. In other words, late in their careers, they wrote breakout novels. Uh, Asimov could sort of, sort of smash his robot stories together with his foundation stories together with his detective stories and, and make bestsellers out of them, yep. largely because of the nostalgia factor. And Clark could write sequels to 2001, which would put him on the bestseller list. But essentially, their core readerships were within science fiction. I'm not sure that's true anymore of Gibson or Stevenson. What about Le Guin? Le Guin, I think it's hard. Well, Le Guin is a special case because she writes equally well in science fiction and fantasy, and even in what you might call magic realism. Mm-hmm. Le Guin, I, um, I was thinking about how beautifully written every sentence is in the word for world is forest. Le Guin is clearly a major American writer of the 20th century, a major world figure of the 20th century, and I'm not sure that uh, you can define her contributions in terms of science fiction anymore at all, although when you look at what she did contribute in science fiction, it's, it's pretty impressive. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody else uh, has the kind of worldwide stature that she has in that list. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I, I yeah. It just occurred to me. I mean, I, I don't think they'll ever be top five again, but those would be certainly my my suggestions. My question is, the next question, which is related to that, is are there any writers who you think would really want to be part of that top five? Oh, I don't think I want to try to answer that question, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you, you almost get into a, a personal pejorative thing with that, don't you? You because you're, you're now not talk, talking about people who could or who might fit. You're saying they want it. Well, okay. I, you know, want it is not, yeah, that's not And not so I, I, could tell you, I could say to you, for example, John Scalzi. That's was, okay, that's what I was thinking. Right? I'm not, but but I would never want to suggest what his motivations or thoughts on the subject are. We're not – we should make it very clear. We're not implying that John Scalzi wants anything at all. Um, <laughs> Other than to be, you know, uh, to be world a successful. Peace. But the point is, he probably he, wants world he peace. Has career, he has a career which is a very high-profile career. He has a career which looks somewhat like the careers of Clark and Asimov might have looked at a certain point, let's say in the early fifties when they were beginning to publish books. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's on that kind of trajectory. Sure. Uh, it may be that somebody, it may be that James S. A. Corey is on some kind of a trajectory like that. Um, but there are a number of writers that published one or two novels along those lines that looked like they were going in that direction and then just took off in a different direction. I think there are more options. Uh, here's a good example. Somebody who I think could have been a very good Heinlein science fiction writer had he chosen to pursue it is Scott Westerfeld. 
Oh, Heinlein. That's an interesting one. But certainly, yes, I, I take what you mean. You're going to refer now to Scott's brilliant, I mean, really quite brilliant uh, space opera novels, There Is an Empire, which he opted Absolutely. to not follow up on. Exactly. Sure, yes. I mean, he's there a terrific writer, and he's got a new novel coming out shortly afterwards, which is science fiction, which I'm looking forward to, oh, but yes. Adult fiction novel. Mm-hmm. No, not an adult. Uh, YA science fiction novel. Why? Okay, why? But the thing is, he... He he had a much more successful career career in YA, and uh, and that was an option to him. He his YA novels. One of the things I think that he realized, as other writers have realized, including Paolo Bacigalupi, is that you can write YA novels, and if you have a following among science fiction readers, they'll read them anyway. Well, actually, you touch on one of the other possible candidates, do you not? Paolo. Yeah. Yes. Has all of the characteristics and, and whatever else, but you know, look, that, the the field isn't the field that it was, which is probably in many ways a very good thing, uh, and the, the field is now a part of just, you know, modern culture, and so you know it it can't have a big five, I don't think, and it can't be dominated by one set of views any longer, you know, in quite the same way that it once might have been. Well, and there is a there isn't a community of editors anymore. There isn't a uh, a limited number of people at a limited number of publishing houses who will look at these uh, uh, possibilities. We look at the number of important writers that are being published by Small Beer or by Tachyon or by Subterranean that uh, you know would have been published by Doubleday 50 years ago. Yeah. So to some extent, the community has broadened in such a way that... Uh, the, 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 we've said this a, a, a dozen times at least before on the podcast. There's there's not a consensus community anymore. No, there's not, and there never will be again. Uh, at best, you've got a bunch of voices which uh, are out there and they sort of talk at each other and share some views, but that's it. Um, yeah. And as I've, said, as I've said before here on the podcast, I've said to some friends, I, I do still wonder how far out you have to pull to get a view of science fiction as a whole in 2014. I think it's very hard to have an idea of what it's like right now. Uh, and well, then it gets harder. Yeah, this, is, this is one of the reasons that I'm giving another plug to your year's best, which I liked a lot, even though you don't think I did. Or Rich's <laughs> year's best, which I've not seen. Or Gardner's year's best, which I've not seen yet. But the point is that you can do that by reading a lot of short fiction. And one sense that I get when I look at all the year's best is that I'm getting that zoom out effect. Mm -hmm. There are people doing all kinds of different things. There are people doing different um, different cultures. One of the things I will I will mention one of the things that struck me about your year's best since I haven't shown you the review yet is not only that there are a number the diversity of writers in it, the diversity of non-Anglo American Australian writers in it, which has been something that's been noticeable in the last several years, but the number of writers even who are traditional Anglo-American, you know, Australian, who are using non-Western settings. Oh, yeah. The number of stories that are set in Thailand or Japan, uh, even not by Thai and Japanese writers. And I think that's salutary, although it raises an issue which I am not going to get into in the review and probably shouldn't get into now. It seems to me that the anxiety over cultural appropriation, which was a big issue a few years ago, may have sort of leveled out. Maybe people have learned how to talk about different cultures with respect, but um, the, the most striking thing that I'm seeing in the last few years are the number of science fiction stories. I talked to Nettie about this last week, in which the aliens land in Lagos instead of London, in which uh, the future is in Thailand instead of 
Um, well, well, I mean, look, certainly I think that we are, well, first of all, people are trying to be more open and aware uh, of science fiction mm-hmm. writers from different backgrounds and cultures and countries, which is good. And that will have the effect you're talking about. And yet, to some degree, there's also an element where you can see a generation of writers going, well, hang on, you know, we have been writing characters like this. Let's see what it's like that. I mean, if you're going to write a character set in 21st century North America, a goodly portion of them will not be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males kind of thing. And, you know, even if your lead character is, well, probably half of the people around them won't be. And so maybe you need to reflect that society. And so that, that is an encouraging and salutary thing. Just as, you know, it's been a while since you could look around science fiction and mostly see, you know, capable engineers solving problems. I think that's true. I think it's, that's another change is simply not that the characters and the settings are, are, are diversifying, but that the nature of science fiction protagonists are diversifying. Essentially, no, you're right. We, we see very few rocket jockeys and engineers, and if we do, they probably have all kinds of crippling personal problems. In other words, uh, the science fiction characters are more diverse. Science fiction settings are more diverse. And I think when we look at writers coming in from other cultures, or coming in with backgrounds in other cultures, um, we should celebrate that, but we should also celebrate the fact that people are recognizing, as you say, the fact that the future, the future population is not going to look like our population. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an improvement because, frankly, uh, and we talked, I think, not on last week's podcast and maybe not on any podcast, but I know I've talked to Nettie at some point about the way Africa had been portrayed in science fiction until a handful of African writers began to talk about it. And you were talking about uh, Mike Resnick to some extent. You were talking about um, um, one of Ballard's novels. Uh, and, to, and, and, and there was a sense in which there was this lush, image of fertility, the sort of natural environment was portrayed, but not from within the cultures of that continent in the way yeah. that, for example, Nutty is trying to do now. I think the same thing is true of India. And I think that when we have, when we have writers who are uh, very assiduously trying to understand uh, the cultures they're writing about, the most prominent of whom is probably still Ian MacDonald, uh, who gets apparently very good responses from Indian readers for mm-hmm. River of God, from Brazilian, well, actually, I think Brazil has just been published in Brazil, um, that there, there's, there's a sense that, okay, the future is not what we had always assumed the future was going to be back in the 50s and 60s. And that's one of the things that I think young and more diverse readers have problems with when they look at Heinlein yeah. and at that, 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 Clark. It may be. Maybe I need to go, maybe I'll read a Heinlein book on the plane on the way to Worldcon to see if I can talk about it there. I don't know. I reread uh, when you were talking about what you'd reread. I re- reread a couple of Heinlein novels for for this sure. library of and settled on Double Star. And Double Star works really well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel as we, as we just to, to step on you for a second as we're coming towards the end of the podcast, and we might sort of touch yeah. on the coming month or two, Gary, because I think we should. And I'll tell you why. Okay. For, we have been self-critical and have been criticised gently and, and kindly for over-focusing on awards. We should press up. We should preface the, the coming months by saying we are moving into awards season, Gary. It's going to be very hard not to talk about them some more. Well, uh, I think I'll tell you why. First of all, mm-hmm. next weekend the Hugo Ballad is announced. That's true. We are probably about three or four weeks away from having the Nebula winners announced, and after that the Locus Awards and several others as we move up to the Hugo Awards themselves. 
and the World Fantasy Award nominations, da 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 da. We apologize for that coverage to some degree, but it is part of the, the discussion we're caught up in. And one of the things we're going to do, Gary, because we promised ourselves we would, not for this reason, but we will, is we will have more guests on in coming months. Because when we have guests on, we don't talk about that, do we, Gary? Um, well, it, we probably don't, although the guests we're likely to have on are likely to be nominated for some award or another, and sometimes it's always interesting to see what comes up with that. I will say, in, in, in defense of our discussing awards more than we should, is that the field itself discusses awards more than it should. There are a lot of awards in this field, um, and there's between, you're right, between now, beginning with the Crawford Award, which was last month, and the World Fantasy Awards, which will be at the end of October, we have this flood of carnivals. It's like, it's, it's like the award season in the science fiction world is like the giant rock concert, the giant outdoor rock concert yeah. season is in the U.S., where people go from San Diego to Chicago's Lollapalooza to various other things to Coachella. And we have our own version of that in the science fiction field, and it seems to be something that, that interests people a lot. I also think it's interesting to find out how these various awards play out, because so many of them have different approaches to the field. Yeah. Uh, some are ju juried, some are popular votes, some are partly juried in popular vote. Um, and like the World Fantasy Awards. So I think, yeah, we, we need to apologize for that a little bit. But I think there are also issues, which we won't talk about now, but which I want to talk about at the future podcast, and we've uh, touched upon a couple of times, which is what constitutes a genre work which is eligible, eligible for an award. Uh, we've already seen with the Nebula Ballot, Nicola Griffiths Hild, uh, Andy Duncan and Ellen Clagis's McCullough Springs, and... Karen Joy Fowler's We Are All Beside Ourselves. And we've already seen some discussion like, why are these things science fiction? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think there are answers to it. Okay. Uh, but I think that uh, the whole question of what constitutes awards eligibility is an interesting one. My thought, which we can hold for the next podcast because... Yep, we will. Yep. With this. My thought is that reading science fiction can define science fiction as well as writing. Yeah. And does anybody really want the Hugo ballot or the World Fantasy ballot or the Shirley Jackson ballot or the Nebula ballot to try to write a definition of a genre that nobody has succeeded in defining in the last 60 years? <laughs> well, whilst part of the answer to that question will be, I'm sure somebody does, I think it's something somebody we, could, we, we, we could come at, yes, as a, as a topic of conversation. I'm also I, I'm going to also sort of derail this because I, we're nearly at the very end of the podcast. Yeah, and, and just as you know, what's got me thinking about the future, Gary, is you've just re read and reviewed the best of science fiction fantasy of the year, Volume Eight. I'm looking yes. at the cover for Volume Nine. No oh, pressure. Wow. Yeah, I know. Um, and we're, we've been talking a lot about LunCon Three, the 2014 World Science Fiction Convention, coming in to London in August of this year, which we will be attending. And I intend to go on and on about the fact that for the first time in the history of the world, Gary, the Cooch Street Podcast will be live. On stage. At the Excel Center. Uh, we will record episode 200 of the podcast, Gary, will we not? Even if we have to go back and delete old episodes to make sure it's 200. We will. We, we, we can certainly do that. We can certainly rearrange time. We can, we can edit history. <laughs> 
if it's not if it's not 200 we'll call it the actual 200th episode uh and we will have guests is the plan mm -hmm. we will have time we'll have an hour and 10 20 minutes to record a podcast we have a, a theme in mind we'll get a guest introducer for it in maybe jonathan ross would do it um and Ooh. sorry <laughs> sorry anyway uh and we, we hope that you know, everyone will come. We will, as soon as we have a place and a time, we will start trumpeting it. And we will be on the program of Worldcon so people can find us. Sadly, sadly, misinformed people can wander in. Yes. I think at the moment, it may have, if it hasn't moved, they're talking about Friday at noon. Now, this mean, means that sort of you might have to skip lunch, but this is us. We're worth skipping lunch for. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Will we we'll skip exactly. lunch? Hang on. We'd have to skip lunch, Gary. We could get everybody else on stage, and we could go out for lunch. We could, we could do that, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, um, it will be an extravaganza without either one of us. <laughs> but yes, I think we will have an extravaganza. Um, some of our galactic suburbia pals will be at the convention. Mm -hmm. My daughter will be there. You will be there. Stacy will be there. Uh, some of our, our good friends who are already talking about coming and appearing on the podcast with us. Are there? Yes. It should be. No, I think this will be, and this will be, I've, by all accounts, by all the advanced uh, uh, information I've seen and been told, will be certainly one of the largest world cons in history. If it okay, if it hits the numbers they're talking about, it will be the biggest. Mm -hmm. uh, the the World Science Fiction Convention has only had more than eight thousand attendees once, so they are really looking to make this big. I think it's gonna be really exciting. Lots of people are coming. Uh, the real problem is you're going to miss everybody uh, and how you balance pre-planning enough to see the people you want without cutting everybody else off, how you ever find the convention bar, I don't know. Um, get your cell phone plan worked out now because you're going to need it. Good idea, yes. <laughs> but we will be there. We will, we will, we will rehearse. We're, yeah, we, we, we have a secluded rehearsal facility somewhere in the, in the, in the, in the rural France where we will meet beforehand. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll work to 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 polish up our act. There will well, be clothes, we, there will be chairs, there will be microphones. What more could you want? Well, because we we, we don't want to uh, we don't want to create a series of depressing suggestions among our listeners who can't manage to go to Worldcon. So let's say that since we're there, we will bring Worldcon to you. If you cannot manage at this point to get to London to the Docklands area, which is not really close to anything else in London, uh, we'll make it as homey as we can in, on the podcast. And, and We're not going to ask for like armchairs and slippers, are we? Um, well, if, you know, if I, could, if I could find an indoor space left in the world where I could sit back and smoke my pipe and have a glass of shirt and sit in a chair and dog <laughs> here's the problem what, what we really what you really want is you want them to give you a corner of the bar to podcast from well that's kind of what i'd like yeah actually and, but we'll see what happens we might oh, that would be a, I had the most bizarre idea imagine you know part of what we've been compared favorably favorably to waldorf and statler right the waldorf and statler science fiction imagine if you had a little like radio booth in the wall of a of a bar and like there's everybody at the bar and there's like you and me with like m microphones and headsets on podcasting from the bar. Of, from, we could be like, a, we could be like American sportscasters. We could have a booth above the bar calling on, okay, 
Scalzi is being hit on by 17 fans now. Let's see how he gets out of this one. And we can just do play-by-play announcements of the bar. Here we are at the 2014 World Fantasy Convention coming to you live from Washington. And yes, Guy Gavriel Kai is going for another single malt. I think yes. it must be the Springbank. Well chosen, sir. <laughs> oh, we can't do this. It I think it's time to wind up, Gareth. Yeah, it's time to wind up. We're getting out of control. We're at a minute and three. We can probably even cut the last two minutes of this. As always, <laughs> it's been spectacular fun. We can get. We will talk next week. We will have guests. We will have a Hugo ballot. It and will be will Easter. It will be SwanCon, the the Australian national, well, not the national science fiction convention this year, but but the actual the West Australian uh, science fiction convention is on next week. I guess if I was being a good person, I would go and try and get a guest interviewee thing going because we've got some nice people coming. Uh, Cat Sparks will be over for it, but also um, I think Isabel Carmody's in town. And if you've not met Isabel, she's just one of the world's more delightful people. Excellent. And Jim Butcher's in town for it and some other people. So, yeah, good stuff. But however it may come down, until next weekend. Until next weekend. uh, This is the Good Street Podcast. And we'll talk to you then. Bye.